This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Hey folks, welcome back. Johnny Paycheck on the radio there, doing Take This Job and Shove It. I think maybe we could make that our th- our theme song. Lots of nods here from our crack team of interns uh, as well. We've been talking about high-paid jobs or jobs that are booming. We're going to switch gears and talk about maybe the other end of the spectrum, and this is jobs that aren't paying very well and work, which is pretty difficult. And with us to talk about this is Annalise Orlick, who's professor of history at Dartmouth, Dartmouth College, and has a new book called We Are All Fast Food Workers Now, The Global Uprising Against Poverty. Annalise, welcome. Thank you. So a quick question, Annalise, uh, and maybe just to get off the ground here. Um, how does a historian end up on a topic like this, very contemporary sort of story? Um, is this, uh, the kind of, this is the kind of work that you've been doing a lot? How does this relate to... It's not what we usually think of historians doing, I guess I should say. Well, I was doing something more typical for historians back in 2011, organizing a 100th anniversary commemoration for the Triangle Factory fire. Okay. And what became clear to those of us who were organizing the commemoration is that the traditional narrative for that fire, which is that it, it changed everything, it was a line in the sand, galvanized the national consensus that workers shouldn't have to put their lives on the line when they, when they mm-hmm. go to make a living, that, um, and now we, you know, government regulated workplace safety, we had strong unions, all of that was no longer true. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that in the, in the past 30 or 40 years, uh, the, the situation for workers had deteriorated quite a bit. And yeah. so we invited a number of workers who worked at today's dangerous jobs. And one of them was the then 37-year-old leader of Bangladesh Garment Workers Movement. And remember, Bangladesh makes all of our clothes. I mean, they're, they're the second largest clothing exporter in the world wow. um, at many points, sometimes alternating uh, with India. China, of course, is first. Anyway, um, she said, as she walked up on the stage for this commemoration in this room where Great Garment Strike had started 100 years earlier and close to Triangle, she said, in Bangladesh, it's not 2011, it's 1911. Mm -hmm. And that became the the spark and the beginning for the book. And I started traveling around and talking to workers, both in the U.S. and abroad, and it began to become clear to me that it's not just 1911 in Bangladesh. It's 1911 in many parts of the world, and mm-hmm. it's even mm-hmm. in many parts of the United States mm-hmm. as far as workers are concerned. So before we uh, we pursue that a little further, if you could back up a little and tell people what the Triangle Fire was about, because I imagine, frankly, not many people know these days. Okay, so the Triangle Fire took place in a garment shop in New York City in March of 2011, and it was... Uh, a modern garment shop, not a sweatshop. It was one that the building was fireproof, and that was widely advertised. And uh, what happened is that on the 7th, 8th, and ninth floors of this building in Greenwich Village, where these very fashionable shirtwaists were being made, uh, a fire started, and it spread very quickly for reasons that workers were well aware of, because they had, they had fought a strike a couple of years earlier and tried to address those conditions without success. And the fire spread, and people uh, had to get out quickly. The elevator very quickly stopped working. The doors 
uh, were either locked or well, some of them may have been locked. That was never uh, definitively proven in court. But anyway, uh, people died of smoke inhalation because the door, they, their bodies piled up in front of the doors. They couldn't get out. And most dramatically, uh, many workers fell off the fire escape or jumped off to escape the fire, some of them already burning. And so New Yorkers, thousands of them watched 146 young workers, most of them Women, young right? girls, yeah. 14, 15, 16. Mm-hmm. The oldest ones were in their 20s, mm-hmm. uh, die in a very short time. And so it was, it was not that workers didn't die in other industries at that time, but that really changed the way Americans looked at, at workplace accidents. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, kicked off, particularly in New York City, a series of reforms or efforts to try to regulate the workplace. And that's the tipping point to which you're referring, right? One of the witnesses was a, a social worker named Frances Perkins, um, who headed the National Consumer League. She would later become Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor. And and, she, and I don't know if you knew this, a graduate of the Wharton School. Uh, there you go. And she <laughs> vowed that um, she would do everything, devote the rest of her career to, to making sure things like this didn't happen anymore. Right. And she did it in New York State, and then she went on to frame national legislation, right. uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, the National Labor Relations Act, and much more in an attempt to try to prevent future triangles. But what I realized is that here we are in the 21st century, and triangles happen all the time. In Bangladesh, there are hundreds of fires. Yeah. Uh, in 2013, there was a workplace disaster that took 10 times the number of lives that triangle did. So I'm a historian writing about the present in part because it's a story of going backwards 100 years, mm-hmm. and that's not how history is usually written. So let's talk about the going backwards. So after the Triangle Fire, after the New Deal, and during the New Deal, a lot of labor laws put in place, protective labor legislation, occupational safety and health legislation comes in 1960s, states as well, and as you say, unions were particularly strong in the 50s. Unions started to decline from the 1950s or so, but the labor legislation more or less continued on did something happen in particular, or is this death by a thousand cuts that led to the kinds of problems that you're seeing now? Let's talk about the U.S. here first. Okay. So what we began to get is what the rest of the world calls contractualization and what we call here the gig economy. And I argue in this book that that everybody, everybody who was an employee is now a contract worker. Everybody's an independent contractor. Um, and so, for example, in our own profession, uh, 75% of teaching PhDs in the United States right now are contract workers. Yeah. And so what that means in many jobs is that workers no longer have the protection of those labor laws. Mm-hmm. They haven't, the laws haven't been repealed. They're just deemed not covered, not covered by maximum hours laws, minimum right. wage laws, um, safety standards laws in many cases. And so what, one of the things I found in talking to people who work in all kinds of jobs, really all kinds of jobs, it was a professor who said to me, we're all fast food workers now because he calculated he made about $8.05 an hour uh-huh. um, and was organizing with fast food workers. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's happened is that, that everybody, um, you know, this wonderful gig economy is, in fact, an end run around the New Deal. And mm-hmm. it's an end run around uh, the occupational safety and health regulations and, and many others. Right. So this is intentional uh, way to get around the costs on the employer side and also the apparent difficulty for many employers in 
complying with these laws, and they found a way to do it. But the way was always there. So why do you think it only happened now? There wasn't a big change. There wasn't a big change in law that made this happen. What do you think is behind that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you have the spread of capital around the world in a way that we, we did not see in quite the same way, you know, except maybe since the age of, you know, colonialism, but that was more governments expanding. This is corporations expanding. And, you, you know, you have, I write a lot in this book about McDonald's and uh, Walmart employees, the number one and number two private employers um, on earth and in the United States, hmm. um, but in many countries around the world, right? So you've got, you know, you've got McDonald's in more than 100 countries on six continents. You've got Walmarts. There are thousands of Walmarts uh, around the world. And so you began to get policies that first of all, these companies are more powerful uh, than most nation states, not than the U.S. government, but more powerful than most, um, and they have been able to, to in through their power, do an end run around labor laws. But there's also the proliferation uh, via the World Bank and other global lending institutions of something called export processing zones, and uh, since the turn of the 21st century, they've spread so that there are something like 4,000 plus around the world, mm-hmm. it, mostly in other parts of the world, but also in the United States. Mm-hmm. And and in these zones, national labor laws don't apply. And mm-hmm. so when you had companies go into debt during the debt crises from you know the 60s, of the 80s, of the 90s. Um, Often the rules made by global lenders, you know, were that you had to open up your country to more investment by foreign capital, and um, and one of the ways you could do this without overly regulating what they did in your country was through these export processing zones. And they were advertised Hmm. around the world as a way to bring in foreign capital nowhere more successfully than Bangladesh, which became, you know, one of the centers of the global garment industry almost overnight. So uh, one of the stories we hear, we used to tell about economic development, right, is that multinational companies come into countries which are developing And they transfer technology and they change the workplace, you know, with greater demand for labor and stuff. But you're suggesting that actually the effect was the reverse? Well, the story is certainly more complicated in many countries that I looked at. Let me talk about the Philippines for one. Okay, go. As a long-time American colony, the Philippines had pretty robust labor laws that looked exactly like ours. Okay. um, Because they were. And what happened is that when, when the garment industry began to flee to the abroad, uh, you know, in uh, the 1980s and 90s, places like the Philippines and Mexico, which had pretty robust labor movements, were among the first places they went. Um, what happened, though, in and so, you know, I, I interviewed people who worked in garment shops in Manila and in Cebu, and they were working, they were unionized, and, and they made a decent living, and it was much like being a unionized worker in the United States in the 1970s. Okay. Uh, but with the beginning of these export processing zones, all of the places that they used to work fled to the zones, oh. right? Hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so the, the pay dropped precipitously hmm. in places like you know, like Mexico, like the Philippines. Okay. Also, you got a race to the bottom, and you know, and because of these zones, a place like Bangladesh, which was the cheapest place in the world to make clothing, was always the threat that hung over everybody, every worker's head in other countries. Huh. Too bad, you you know, you you fight back when we cut your wages. You want to earn more? Well, 
you know, the corporation will just pick up and go to Bangladesh. And so that, that has created a race to the bottom that's come back and affected workers in the United States and driven down wages and working conditions in the United States. So I should confess, I don't know anything about these zones. So maybe you could say just a little bit more about how they come about, how we got them. And before you do that, let me just remind people who you are and what we're doing. Okay. Uh, this is Annalise Orlick, who's a professor of history at Dartmouth College, and her new book is We Are All Fast Food Workers Now, The Global Uprising Against Poverty. This is low-wage jobs and the attributes that made jobs worse, not just in the U.S., but around around the world. So tell us a little more about these zones, which seem to feature pretty prominently in the story. Yeah, yeah they're they're very, very important. Well, they're, you know, in terms of, of what transformed the condition of workers and uh, you know in the US and around the world and what drove down wages and what drove uh manufacturers to go abroad to leave the United States right which was a big issue in the 2016 campaign right. export processing zones were very very prominent and um you know you can hear both sides of the story the world bank will say they're absolutely crucial in reducing poverty in the developing world uh the international labor organization will say uh they are among the most important driving forces in the deterioration of work conditions yeah. and of wages um but and- who, who puts them in place? They were. Was it the World Bank who made uh, these part of loan packages, or how, how did they get in place yeah, in these sometimes, countries? Sometimes the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund would would insist on on their creation, um, but uh, you know to bail someone out. So you okay. know, in in the Philippines, for example. Um, you know, when the Marcos dictatorship was, was coming to an end and he was in a crazy amount of debt, um, you know, he agreed to create these export processing zones as, as you know, a condition of, of getting bailed out. And ironically, one of the biggest ones on, um, you know, on the Bataan Peninsula is, you know, on the grounds where Japanese uh, prisoner of war camps were during World War II. And there is a, there is a, prison camp feel to many of these export processing zones. They're surrounded by barbed wire. They have private armies. They basically have their own laws. So there have been cases of strikes and and worker uprisings in these zones, but it's but it's dangerous. It's it's every every organizer I talked to who organizes in those zones said, you know, as one person said to me, people end up, you know, face down floating in the lagoon. So there's a lot of intimidation of organizers. There's a lot of of beating of workers. The AFL-CIO found that in many of these zones, uh, you know, a, a staggering majority of workers, for example, in the garment industry, um, factories in these zones were, were getting beaten for, for working too slowly on the job. So it's bad. The situation in many of these zones is very, very bad. Not all of them, but in, in a sizable number. So uh, let's uh, if Dan O'Meara was here, he'd certainly ask this question, but uh, let me ask it as, as well. And that is the countries agree to this? I guess. Is this, um, you know, if we think about the moral issue here, the countries pick the policies they want for their own employees, and I guess they decided we're going to lift these regulations because the way capitalism is working, the way international business is working, if we want the jobs, we've got to lift them. Well, Bangladesh is an interesting example, right, because... um, you know, after the the very bloody war of independence in, ended in seventy seventy one, they wanted to jumpstart the economy. I mean, the the, com- the country has been, you know, on the verge of civil war all this time between you know the Islamist and the um, the 
the secular parties, but uh, both sides invested heavily in the growth of the garment industry. So okay. it has yep. benefited an elite, and mm-hmm. in fact, it has benefited many workers to the you know to the extent that right. you have four million women coming out of these villages into the cities and working you know working making clothes yep. now and they want the jobs yep. as yep. as Calpona actor said we just don't want to risk death or yeah. injury and to and, make and a living. right and to be fair we don't want to create a false dichotomy here it's not either or right, uh, right. you can have some of uh, some of both so let's get to the second part of your story and that's the uprising right. Uh, what are you seeing going on there? What's the common link that you're seeing around countries? Well, workers are, are um, organizing for higher wages. They're organizing for safer conditions. And, you know, the, the common link is that you've got transnational corporations. So, for example, um, I interviewed a young man named Blue Rainier, who's a Tampa, Florida McDonald's worker. And he opened up his mail and he found himself invited to go speak before the federal Senate in Brazil in the summer of 2015. Oh. And that hearing took place because McDonald's was the second largest employer in Brazil, and the workers in that country had convinced their legislators that McDonald's was driving down wages and safety conditions for all workers in the country, and indeed for for workers in many industries around the world. So they invited lots of fast food workers in from all over the world, and Blue met his counterparts who worked in McDonald's in Tokyo and in Seoul and in Brazil. And there was this remarkable moment when the guy from Japan rolled up his sleeve and Blue saw that he had burns, a series of burns on his arm in exactly the same place as Blue did. Mm-hmm. So Blue rolled up his sleeve, um, and they met a guy from Manila named Benedict Murillo who rolled up his sleeve. Mm-hmm. And all of them had burns in exactly the same places. And so they began to talk about, you know, the rule that you turn around an order in 90 seconds, right? The fact that they're all reaching with, the, you know, the, the geography of the store, they're all reaching to do that over boiling oil. Yeah. Um, and all of the other rules that gave rise to the kinds of conditions they faced. And so that's one thing that makes workers, gives workers a sense of being a global working class. And they have pulled off remarkable remarkable organizing feats. In 2013 to now, there have been numerous global actions where you have workers walking out of fast food places, Hmm. you know, in 40 countries on six continents Mm -hmm. and hundreds and hundreds of cities. Now, in the the U.S., yeah, so in the U.S., we're probably, I'm probably fair to say, we're not seeing a lot of this in the U.S., right? More success outside? You think we are? No, 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 we are. Okay. Absolutely. This started in many ways in New York in 2012 um, at at McDonald's, and it started in Walmart um, in California in 2012. Um, And it has spread... Uh, so that no, you. I mean, we just celebrated the celebrated, commemorated the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's murder yesterday, and one of the first fast food workers I interviewed had just come back from a congress of 500 of her co-organizers, fast food workers organizing all over the United States, where they were trained in Atlanta um, at Martin Luther King's church by the surviving uh, activists from the 1968 Memphis okay. sanitation strike where King went and was killed. So um, they have been having actions here on Labor Days uh, very, very frequently. Every few months, they just sat in um, uh, at the Oak Park headquarters of McDonald's, Oak Brook headquarters, uh, just the other day, because McDonald's had promised a certain wage increase that never came. So, no, we're seeing in the United States, and we're seeing it all over. So let me ask you about the goals here of this, maybe in the last minute or so. 
political change here, or they think they the the folks who are in these uh, efforts behind these efforts think they can change the behavior of individual companies? What's the plan? Well, they have. I mean, the the workers in the United States between 2012 and 2016 won $61.5 billion in raises for themselves, which is 12 times what Congress gave them the last time they raised the federal minimum wage between 2007-2009. So they have won huge, they've won a lot of wages. Some of it is from private corporations changing their minimum wage voluntarily. Some of it is from local legislation. Some of it is from state legislation. So big changes in wages. Um, They've also started to win paid sick days, which many low-wage workers did not have. Most low-wage workers did not have. They've started to win um, other kinds of benefits, including, you know, some industries like airports, uh, a revival of unionization. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're starting to see some of that from the teachers right now in places like Oklahoma, um, where a gas station attendant earned more than a teacher. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be won in their psychological as well as as financial benefits. Okay. Annalise, uh, pleasure to have you with us. Annalise Ehrlich is professor of history at Dartmouth College. Your new book is We Are All Fast Food Workers Now. The Global Uprising Against Poverty Wages. Annalise will come back in a couple of years and see if we're making progress or not. In the meantime, we're going to say goodbye. We'll see you again next week, same time. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 